to that. There is uh, definitely those black Bibles are free for you to take. We are glad to replace them, so please do so. As you're turning there, just another brief word on what Mike and Nicole shared with us. A lot of you have griefs and trials that you've been through, and Paul tells us that we are to comfort each other with the comforts with which we've been comforted. And so we need your trials. We need uh, your testimonies of how the Lord worked in the midst of those. The church needs that. It's a beautiful thing. It's helpful for us because trials, James tells us, produce endurance, and endurance works approvedness, and approvedness hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So we are proclaiming hope when we speak about how the Lord worked works in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. You have so benevolently and graciously and mercifully and lovingly given us your word and your truth. Uh, to bank on, to hope in above anything else. So you give such sweet promises. We hope to look and be instructed and be edified, be helped, be made holy through what you have to teach us. And you are the way. Yours is the way. And so we're looking to you to navigate all of life in your way. That's what we want this morning. That's what we hope for. That's what we need. And we know, Lord, that through all this, you're to be glorified. And in you being glorified, people see your goodness and your greatness and your majesty. And that's what we and everyone needs to see. So I pray that you'd work that in us and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 5, we're looking at verses 38 through 45 in your Bibles today. We're moving on from oaths, vows, promises to retaliation, which is really going to be essential in living a kingdom-minded, kingdom-directed life here in this planet amidst the flesh and people of the flesh because you are going to have occasion for desired retaliation, vengeance, revenge, however you want to put it. And we know that that is what characterizes a lot of what happens in the world today. But what Jesus is going to do is going to give us a prohibition against vigilante justice or or getting your own revenge you know two of my favorite things in the canon of literature and it sounds like the two aren't a pair but the count of monte cristo by alexander dumas both the book and the movie and batman i like both those things a lot and have for a long time and what characterizes both of those characters, um, the Count of Monte Cristo and Batman, is their life lived for revenge. And after reading this passage, you'd be like, Pastor, I don't think you should like those for that. And I don't. But, the, but they're interesting, right? Because we, we like that story of when somebody has been beaten down or when some injustice has happened and, and then they kind of rise from the ashes and they, and they get their payback. We like that. In the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, Edmond, who's the main character, he is wrongly imprisoned in a French prison for 16 years. Before he goes into prison, he's this kind of simple-minded uh, um, sailor, and he's got a beautiful fiance, and he's made captain of this ship after they have this rare encounter with Napoleon and he's made captain of the ship and his, he can finally marry his fiance and his best friend and one of his shipmates gets extremely jealous. They frame him for treason, send him off to this unknown distant prison and he's there in a stone cell for 16 years. 
And there's an inscription on the wall when he gets into his cell. And I think it says something like, God is, is my justice, or God will give me justice, or something like that. And he traces that with a rock throughout the years, and then eventually enough years go by and he stops tracing that inscription. And he meets a, a priest in the prison and they become friends and this priest teaches them how to read and how to write and how to fight. And they begin to rehash how he was put in prison because he doesn't really know and he begins to understand that he was, he was framed. He was this, had this great injustice done to him. And so as he's grown in wisdom and as he's grown in strength, he begins to plot how he would get vengeance. And then he ends up breaking out and he, he uh, finds this great treasure and becomes very, very wealthy, right? And makes himself into this count and, and kind of remakes himself and begins to systematically work out his vengeance upon those people that were... Um, that had turned him in. And before the priest dies in prison, who had been a friend to Edmond, he, he tells him not to use the fortune for vengeance. And, and Edmond swears, no, no, surely it will be used for vengeance. Well, after all that is fulfilled throughout the story, then at the end, Edmond is finally with his uh, long-lost wife and his long-lost son come to find out and he says all that was used for vengeance will now surely be used for good and you're like oh that's awesome but <laughs> you're missing the fact that he actually took out the vengeance so now that that's fulfilled now he's going to do good and that's kind of backwards because what jesus teaches us is that vengeance belongs to god and and there's some nuances here we're, we're not going to um, say that capital punishment is wrong. We're not going to say that self-defense is wrong, but we're going to really understand what Jesus is speaking here so that we understand how to respond in the face of injustice, in the face of persecution, in the face of personal insult, in a way that glorifies God. And the whole idea is going to be wrapped up in the fact that that if we are sons of God, then there's a certain way that we live and a certain way that, respond, that we respond that displays something about Him. And the thing that it displays about Him is actually the gospel. Because if God is not a peacemaker with enemies, if His desire is not mercy and compassion over you know, the death of the wicked, then we have no gospel. But if that's his desire, then we have good news. And so if, if we have been saved by that good news, if we believe that good news, then we need to mirror that good news, not only what we say, but what we do. And this isn't the, the attitude that's natural to man. We like those stories about Batman and Edmond Dantes getting their revenge because we want to do the same. We want to mirror those things. We want to make sure that people pay for what they've done. And then we forget the fact that God did not make us pay for what we've done. So he will have his day of vengeance. He will have his day of of wrath, but until that point, he offers us compassion and mercy to his enemies. And that is the very thing we see with Jesus on the cross. Both as he is displaying that and communicating that and acting that out in real time, and both how that's a picture of all of eternity and God's mercy that's going to be available throughout the ages until the end of the age. So Jesus quotes to them the law. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So they've heard this. They've heard that 
the punishment meets the crime. That whatever you've done, that's what should be done unto you. And that holds true throughout societies, throughout centuries, throughout governments. That is a good rule of thumb. That's a great way to govern and deal with evildoers. And that Jesus isn't saying that that's wrong. He's the lawgiver. He's the law fulfiller. Okay? But he's speaking to us a gospel reality that is at play even in the law. But let's investigate first where that law comes from. So we'll look at Exodus 21 to begin with. Exodus 21 verses 20 through 25. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her ch children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I went back to the beginning. But anyways, you, you understand the context there. That we are having laid out for Israel as they become this uh, theocratic state or this state where God alone is king, president, whatever you want to call. He's the ruler there and they are existing under his law and he is saying this is how you're going to deal with all these certain situations. And there's many, many more situations that will come up. Leviticus 24, 17 through 21. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then finally, in Deuteronomy 19, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the, if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So you understand the law. You harm someone, that's your punishment. It's not a bad way to deter evil doing, is it? We've kind of simplified that law and gotten a little more technical and a little more nuanced, but this was supposed to purge the evil from the midst of God's people. That's what it was set up to do. And people understood this before they even committed a crime. They understood how to relate to one another and that as they would do, or even in this case in Leviticus, as they would seek to do, or in Deuteronomy, as they would seek to do to somebody, that is what they should expect in return. But in verse 39, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, do not oppose or bring opposition against the evil person. Now, who's he talking about? Well, if you investigate, this first phrase, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him or the other also. This is an open hand strike below the eyes. That's how detailed this term is. So it's more of an insult than, a, than an injury. And Jesus is saying, don't resist that person Turn to them the other cheek if they want to insult you that way. He's, he's telling people not to escalate the violence, which is not natural. 
Because I guarantee you, if I come smack you across the cheek, you're going to want to do likewise or worse. That's just how humans react in anger when something unjust happens to us. But Jesus doesn't want us to escalate in, in this regard when something like this happens. Why? Well, 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. One of the issues that comes with our natural tendency to retaliate, especially to a personal insult on that level, um, we, we, we want to hate. We want to make people pay. Except for the fact that that's not what Jesus did. He trusted someone. He trusted that God sees all things, knows all things, and Him alone is the righteous judge. He knows what to do with that person that insults you. He knows what to do with the injustice that you've experienced. And he's asking us in those instances to recognize that before our natural tendency to respond. And some of you have gotten to that point where you understand if someone personally insults me, I can deal with that. That's fine. You can say whatever you want to say about me. You can do whatever you want to do to me. And that's a good place to be. Because, and I'm skipping forward here, but that allows us to do battle where battle is to be done. And actually, understanding our scriptures, battle is not really done in the flesh against the flesh. That's not taking away from the fact that, that governments and authorities have to enact punishments on criminals. They must. It's ordained by God. They're ordained by God to do such things. But we are called to proclaim a different, a great reality. Mercy, compassion, peace. And that only in Christ is peace found. And so the ability to not respond in kind is confusing to some. It's weak to some. But for the one who trusts God, it is where real power lies. Because in essence, you're saying when you don't retaliate that God can handle this better than I can, that God can deal with you better than I can, and that if I'm going to do battle where battle is to be done in the, in the spiritual realm with prayer and fasting and those types of things, faith, trust in God, then something greater can happen here from from your sin being enacted on me, uh, then could take place if I were to retaliate right now. You acknowledge that there is a kingdom when you don't retaliate. And you follow Jesus, who knows what's ordained for him to suffer, who knows what injustice is his to take. And not only does he take it, but he doesn't respond to his persecutors in kind. And you see testimonies from the cross of a Roman soldier and surely others that will meet in heaven that were in the crowd or part of the parade of soldiers or, or maybe even part of the Sanhedrin and, and the Jews that were calling for his death that are going to communicate that what they saw with Jesus, uh, suffering as a lamb led to slaughter, silent before it's shearers. They saw something that communicated to them a different reality than they had known in the flesh. And it changed them. We're looking for something greater for, than for just people to get paid back for what they did to us. We're looking for God to be glorified in all circumstances. 
and in all ways. So why can't he do that with your persecutors? How many testimonies are still coming to us today from those that are persecuted in whatever way that is, either that's physically, emotionally, financially, or whatever, and God has called them to a, to a different reality to live according to the kingdom because he wants to do something with that persecutor that will bring him glory and that persecutor good. Some of you have told me those stories. And in our context, usually it's somebody at work who was just awful and you hated to be around them and they were terrible. And then God goes to work. And he uses you as a tool in the midst of that. And eventually that person may get saved. And then what? They become a brother and sister. There's now peace. There's fruit. There's life lived to the glory of God. There is, there is a, a, a promotion of happiness and joy and selflessness. There is so much more that came from that persecution and from the life of your persecutor than you could have wrought simply by striking them back. And as I raise a, now a small army of boys in my house, this becomes the daily reality. And how do you get them to understand this? That there's nothing good to come from retaliating after a personal insult. Well, I'm left with the fact that only God, by His example in Christ and by the power of His Spirit, can only be the one to bring that to bear upon each other. Because we have to see the, the, the spiritual reality at play and not just the insult. You have to have the ability to look beyond the circumstances and the context into a, a greater uh, reality and realm at play. And that takes the Spirit of God. So, we look at these things and we say, does that prohibit self-defense of any kind? Are we to become pacifist some people would argue yes some denominations and religious sections would say yes that means we don't ever take up arms we don't strike we, we, we don't do anything violent and I, I think we have to dig into this to really understand what that means and how that plays out because the law is good right the law is always good it's true. It was given from God. Forgiveness, mercy, compassion is also great. So how do you reconcile the two? Are there instances where you do one and not the other? That's kind of what we're left with. So I'll walk you through three passages here that, that reveal that there's not a prohibition here against self-defense. There's, there's a prohibition against unnecessary retaliation for insults. So, just follow along closely with me. Luke 3, 12 through 14. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And I don't think this will pop up, but soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Why would I bring up this passage? Well, Jesus is not saying, soldiers, you shouldn't exist to keep the peace. You shouldn't exist to bring uh, justice and judgment from God. He's just telling them how to exist as soldiers. To deal righteously and justly in the circumstance Romans 13, we know this one, 1 through 4, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
<clears throat> and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. <clears throat> for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, ideally, <laughs> right, because this isn't always the case, ideally, governments are in place to punish the wrongdoer, to keep the peace. In essence, to enact the law of God. That's why they're there for. None of us in this room would argue that uh, uh, police aren't necessary. We live in a fallen world. Everybody has a sinful nature and sinful desires. And God calls for righteousness and peace. So, we are to look at those authorities as in place by God. They couldn't exist unless God ordained that they be in place. And certainly, as they are humans as well, they will abuse that position. They'll abuse that office. They will punish right instead of wrong at times. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking in the general idea that God put those things in place for good. But they won't always exist for that purpose. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That would be awesome if that's what our governments did all the time. But we know that that's not what they do. So in the context of what Jesus is saying here, he's saying there is to be no vigilante justice, especially in the case of insult. God has ordained and put systems in place to punish crimes. And we're to trust that. We're to look to that. We're to appeal to those things. Do you know how to call 911? It's a silly question, right? 911. We know how to reach them. We're glad we can reach them. We're glad they can do what they can do. But if someone insults you, that's what we're talking about. What are you supposed to do with that? And maybe it is more than that. Somebody harms you. You can certainly appeal to the authorities, as you should. God put them in place. But there's something greater that could be done. So it brings me to another question. What if the government is corrupt? People are allowed to unjustly sue me, as we'll read here in a second. Or the government forces me into some sort of public service or endeavor or, or giving up of my property for something that I don't agree with. Uh, what do we do with that? Verse 40 and 41. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You know, the providence of God is amazing. We're hopefully still doing these fighter verses. I understand, as well as you, that some weeks are more difficult and impossible than others. But we still meditate on them. We still read them. We still acknowledge them. We still remember them. And we just finished a passage in Romans 12 that tells us what to do in that instance. If the government's corrupt, if people sue me unjustly, if, if I'm forced to pay for or even go into service that I don't agree with, what do you do? Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It was either a year or two ago, we saw that, that movie in here. We showed a movie one night in here. Um, I forget the name of it, Lisa. Do you remember? Yeah, it starts with an S. Yeah, so, but anyways, it was about uh, um, a, a woman and her husband. What's that? Sabina. It was about Sabina and her husband who existed during World War II. And, you know, I think at some points they were forced to house some of the Nazis and uh, stuff like this. And he was a pastor. And, and, uh, and, it, and it shows them, it gives the real-life testimony of how they responded to what we're talking about right now. The evils of regimes and governments that were forcing them to do things that they didn't want to do. And the response to them was this passage in Romans 12, 70 through 21. And, and, and by the grace of God, we see uh, those officers come to faith. We see these Nazis get saved. We see much fruit while they're experiencing much persecution. And you know what they had because of that in the midst of their trials? Joy. Because not only are they seeing that, that God is able to save to the utmost the most evil person, but that if God can do that, then they can trust Him with meeting out justice on those things they were experiencing. But what brought them more joy was to see those enemies turned into brothers and sisters. If you don't have, even at the thought of that, an enemy becoming a brother and sister, if you don't have joy at that thought, then I question whether you understand the gospel or not. Or if you've forgotten it. Because you always have to put everything in light of who you are or were in relation to God. Romans tells us that we were children of wrath. Romans 5 tells us that even while we were enemies, at the right time Christ died for us. If you forget that or if you don't know that, then I don't know why you would have any joy in seeing an enemy be made a brother. It's only in the gospel that that, that becomes a joyous reality, a life-giving truth that is more desired than the death of the wicked. If God doesn't desire the death of the wicked... He'll do it because he's committed to justice. But if he doesn't desire that, then doesn't that speak to the evilness and the hatred of our heart when we are just thirsty for that? And you're saying, well, David in the Psalms calls down the judgment of God on enemies in, in intense ways. Okay. David's not doing battle against the flesh. David is calling actually for the destruction of the evil that is in and behind those people. David understands the mercy and compassion of God. David understands that, that as he calls for justice, God should surely have destroyed him. He committed adultery and murder in one act or one, one event. He is calling for the destruction of the evil that holds people captive and reigns over so much in this world. Of course we want God to destroy those things. That's why if you make a habit of praying through the Psalms and you come to those Psalms, you need to pray those against the evil in your life and heart and in other people's lives and heart. So then how do I defend myself if needed? Because it seemed to be saying that you can do that at times. 
Well, Jesus tells us not really to worry about it because Luke 12, 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, this is in a government context, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. I don't have the second part here, but he goes on to say, it'll be provided for you. I'll tell you, I'll show you, or I'll do it. When the apostles get, get locked up and persecuted at times, what do they do? They entrust themselves personally to God, and the brothers and sisters pray for the ones that are being persecuted, and it gives an opportunity for, for God's glory and majesty and power to be presented. Either he just opens the prison door, or he destroys the persecutor, or gives them the words that, are, that begin to be this great testimony throughout the ages to the gospel. I mean, as I'm talking about that, I am, I'm, my mind is just racing through Acts and just watching how this is lived out in the lives of the apostles upon persecution. Take the Philippian jailer, for example. The, the, the prison gates fling wide open. All right, all the prisoners can band together and kill the jailer. Or they can take off and the Romans will kill the jailer for letting everybody go. But what's Paul's response? Paul keeps everybody in place and he brings the gospel to the enemy. And then what happens? The enemy's household is saved and baptized. And Paul eventually gets to go free, but he wasn't worried about that. He was trusting himself to God. And then, at the end of Acts, right? When, when he's in, in court, he gives this great, awesome testimony to the gospel. So much so that the emperor is like, you trying to save me? Paul's like, if it, if it would be. We must be a people who are entrusting ourselves to the Lord at all times. He is worth having faith in. He will take care of his people. When people revile you and say all kinds of false things against you, what is your response? Is it defend, defend, defend? Or are you going to have faith and trust that God will bring the truth to bear? Or do you feel like you have to save yourself and justify yourself and, and clear your name constantly? God is so much better at it. Oftentimes, responding in silence is just the dagger that, that the enemy needs. Because you're not putting fuel on the fire. You're not getting carried away from uh, an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown. You're not getting drawn into a fight that will distract from focusing on the power of God in this situation, the sovereignty of God in this situation. You're not being drawn into a circumstance when, when you could fall in the flesh and commit sin by doing evil to somebody. You're trusting that God will take care of it. And you may think that's silly and passive at times. Well, then I would say, where's your faith? Is it real? Are you really going to trust God to do things that he said to do? To take care of you? To vindicate you? To justify you? Here's what Moses reminds the Israelites of. Right, This is before... Right before the death of Moses, before he stops talking, before he's done. It, it's, it's in Moses' song, it's called, in Deuteronomy 32. And he's talking to the children of Israel. It says four, and he's talking about their enemies. Because they're going to have a lot. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clutters, clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. 
For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I've got to pick the rest of this up in my Bible here. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. And I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, O gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. That's what we can trust God to do. That's what all those that have been martyred in Revelation, that's what they'll see. They will see the power and, and the glory and the justice and the wrath of God vindicating them. Doesn't mean they'll be glad about it. But that means that they will see that no sin goes unpunished. And they'll glorify God. Give to the one who begs from you, verse 42 of Matthew 5. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How's this fit in here? So what about the beggars? Must I give in to their request? If somebody's not persecuting me, and they're asking to take from me, what do I do with that? Well, you are never required to give foolishly. We'll come to that in Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You give only to the truly needy when it will actually benefit and not harm them. So you're not supposed to take all these commands to respond to retaliation and even respond to begging as, as completely passive. Yeah, whatever you want, whatever you want to take, whatever you want to do, you know, here, take it. You're required to be wise in the midst of these things. And to appeal to God and the things He's put in place to take care of them. And when it comes to beggars that aren't persecuting you, they're just asking for things from you, you are required to have wisdom in that. We think we're just supposed to have an open hand to anybody who wants anything we have to give. Well, according to Jesus' own words, it depends. Because you could actually hurt people by giving them what they want. Anybody ever raise kids? They want things that aren't good for them all the time. And they ask you for them constantly. What if you gave it to them? wouldn't be good. So sometimes helping hurts. Have you heard that? That's true according to the Bible. And you're supposed to discern the will of God by being so close to Him and praying to Him and, and seeking his, his will, especially with other brothers and sisters. What do we do here? And can I help this person? Will this help this person? And certainly we, we love to make sure that it, regardless of the situation, everybody can, can live and have things that they need to survive. But in all actuality, we're supposed to discern the truly needy. And people get really good about playing the part of truly needy when they're not. 
We want to benefit people. We want to help people. We want to give uh, things to people that will be fruitful for their life, not just for their temporary circumstance, but for their life. We want to move people in that direction. And if they are not willing to take all that we have that is good, namely the gospel and, and the wisdom, uh, let alone our, our gifts that can meet their tangible needs, move on. God's not working there. Sounds harsh, but it's the reality of the wisdom of Scripture. It's the reality of the wisdom of God. So you're supposed to understand there is wisdom and discernment to be had when we're talking about retaliation and just giving away anything that anybody asks for. There's wisdom that has to be had. But I also want you to notice here in verses 43 through 45, the, the heart mindset that we're supposed to have towards enemies. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus reveals to us God's heart for the enemy. As I started this, if he didn't have a heart for his enemies, we'd never become his children. Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, should we be saved by his life? If that has happened to us, and if we understand, like Paul, that we're the chief of sinners, why shouldn't that be shared with an enemy, another evildoer? Jesus expands how we relate to our fellow man, our neighbor, and even our enemy. Because they're understanding, right? According to the law, uh, I'm only going to focus on my neighbor. And even they get that wrong. Because then they try to, to, to uh, nuance who their neighbor is, right? Remember the rich young ruler? You know, it's nuanced in, in uh, Pharisaical law. Okay, my neighbor is only this person, but not that person. And Jesus expands that, right? He, he blows that up, and he's talking about your neighbors, anybody in need. And then he expands that even more, and he says, what about your enemy? What are you going to do there? Love and prayer signify a desire for that enemy to be set free from their bondage to sin and corruption and death. You can't have that desire unless you understand Ephesians 6.12, which comes up over and over and over again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. What our world and our culture doesn't understand is we're not fighting each other. We're dealing with evil and corruption which is reigning for a time over people, over this world, and God, who is reigning over all things. Those are the powers that are at conflict. And only one of those wins, by the way, and we know that. But we treat each other like we are the enemy. Just because we personify some of the evil or some of the good, then we become what we want to deal with or retaliate against because it's tangible. We don't, we don't see a spiritual realm. We don't hear it. It's engaged by faith. And it does have real tangible outworkings in the world, i.e. the evil that people do and the good that people do. But to be able to communicate to a world that is hurting how to actually love and bring peace, it comes through the gospel of Christ who says, you're an enemy, I want to make you a brother. And we have to have that same heart. I found this really interesting from Job 
towards the end of his lament and his trials, he, he's kind of trying to justify himself, but he says something really interesting. He says, if I rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Even Job is understanding that a desire for the, for the death of the, or a curse to come upon the wicked is not godly. He says, I've not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse, asking for his destruction by a, a curse to come upon him. Job understands the heart of God. We know that from the beginning of Job because he's offering sacrifices for his children, understanding that God will forgive them. God will bring their, their judgment upon something else. In other words, you could say that Job has some foundational understanding of what the gospel is. That God will punish sin, surely, but he will mete it out in another way than upon your own head because he's merciful and gracious and kind. We are supposed to be like him, peacemakers. You hearken back to Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. We do what our Father does. We do what our Father does. We understand that He's going to do the sorting out. He's going to sort out the evil and the righteous. And that actually we can't do that to the degree that He's going to do it. But even now, before He does that, Romans 9, 20-24 tells us that uh, He is bearing with patience vessels of wrath to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. He's doing that. And if we're going to be sons of God, then we're called to be try and make peace with those. Hopefully make brothers and sisters out of those enemies. So what's our response? Wait on the Lord. What? Trust and wait on the Lord. To do what? Whatever He's going to do. You know, in the Psalms, uh, it's replete with that phrase. And it usually comes from David, who has enemies constantly. Even, even of his own household, that want his life, that want his throne. And numerous, numerous Psalms. My iPad just died or I'd tell you what all they were. But... Um, where, where in response to the trouble that David faces, he waits on the Lord. There is much to talk about when we talk about waiting on the Lord, and there's certainly more that's going to be said in the future and, and hopefully written about, because I, I, I love this phrase. And it's confusing to us because it seems like doing nothing. What do you mean, wait on the Lord? He stole from me. He sued me on frivolous grounds. He, he smacked me. He called me a name. He ruined my reputation. David encountered that for a long time. And David says stuff like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. 
and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He, waiting on the Lord, and I had a quote here from Piper, means that we are faithfully trusting and dependent on God to fulfill all that he has promised to do. And it also acknowledges, right, to wait, that means to pause and soberly consider our own inadequacy and the Lord's all-sufficiency and to seek counsel and help from the Lord and to hope in Him. So in other words, we don't try to be the, the rescuer, the savior, the fixer of all of our problems or our people's problems. We wait for the Lord to do only what He can do. You ever found yourself in a situation where you feel utterly helpless? That's a signal that you are to wait on the Lord. Okay, so how do I wait on the Lord? You, you soberly depend. You meditate. You pray. You wait for Him to act, for Him to give the answer. You know, I was confronted by somebody of uh, charismatic faith that I don't agree with theologically. But I did learn something from them. They were speaking of a circumstance that happened at their place of business, and, you know, it was just one of those that they don't know what to do. And the way this person spoke confronted me and my own sin to not wait upon the Lord. They said, we went and prayed together as a family, asking the Lord's will to be done and asking Him what we need to do to respond and nothing they still didn't know so then this person went they said and got alone and waited on the Lord in prayer he didn't give them a quick fix he didn't give them a quick answer he didn't give them quick direction and so they continued in faith to cry out to him and to wait on him and to meditate on his word until it became abundantly clear what the Lord wanted them to do. That's not being overly spiritual. That's not being untheological. That is waiting on the Lord. Seeking his will because it's better than our own. Seeking his will because it's always good, and it will always bring about his glory, which is our, should be our number one focus, and our good, which is his focus. For us. Waiting on the Lord is something that Americans don't do. We have money. We have ability. We have the internet. We can fix it. Whatever it is. Maybe the Lord didn't want it fixed that way. Maybe he's got a better way for it to be fixed. So if Jesus doesn't wait on the Lord at the cross, do you know what happens? A legion of angels come down, he gets off the cross, and he destroys everybody. But if he waits on the Lord, then you have the redemption of mankind. You have the salvation of sinners. You have the glory of Jesus for all time. You have him now receiving a bride that was prepared for him, spotless and blameless. You, you have an eternity of praise to God because Jesus waited on the Lord. And I'm as guilty as anybody, especially as your pastor. When I want to see something done, when I think we should do something, when I think you should do something, I try to go about finding the mechanisms that will fix it instead of waiting on the Lord. It sounds contrary to our nature. It sounds silly. It sounds lazy sometimes. But if you have a heart set on seeing um, God's name be made holy here, then you will pray for his kingdom to come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he's the only one who can make that happen. And you acknowledge that in prayer. I'll give you a small example and then we'll close. I don't know the name of our unborn child. It's a small example. 
He's going to tell me. Does that sound overly spiritual to you? Everything matters for his glory. Everything. So I'm trying to train myself in this to the frustration of my dear wife and letting him reveal to us what we should call him. And I don't know yet. But I know he'll tell me. And I know that the, that the Lord will accomplish his will in just how he has planned to. And you are allowed to have peace and joy in the midst of your waiting. And that was kind of two sermons in one. But let's wrap it all up and then I'll let you go, I promise. God is calling for us to look to him to accomplish his will in all things. You're persecuted. You don't know what to do. You're reviled, you're hated, you're confused. All circumstances. You look to his will. You don't know what that is? Then you wait until he reveals it. And you trust that it will always be good and always be for his glory. And you do what you know to do. So today he told us to not take vengeance for ourselves, but to look to him. So I pray that you do that in all situations. And I pray that you'd respond to him now, maybe repent, or maybe just continue to wait on him, and then we'll stand and sing together.